this week and God willing next week for Lord's Day services. We're going to finish our consideration for the time being at least in the book of Psalms and at least in this portion of the book of Psalms that we've been following through for well probably a few years I think it is now if we toss it up but we come actually to Psalm 72 we're trying to deal with it in a kind of comfortable fashion so we set ourselves the first 11 verses to consider this evening then we will come to a conclusion and we will see that that will take us to the end of the second book of this division of the book of Psalms. Then book three begins with Psalm 73. So it seems appropriate to perhaps finish when we've come to the end of Psalm 72. Well, the title for the sermon could really be the title for any sermon, couldn't it? But the blessings of salvation, blessings of salvation. And we see these very much in the entirety of this psalm, certainly there in the first 11 verses. And as is so often in the psalms, as we have seen, but as we find everywhere in the Old Testament, that the Lord Jesus Christ is anticipated again and again and again. Everything is pointing toward him. So a few weeks ago, we were in Psalm 69, and there was his sufferings, very graphically, very absolutely in minute detail, anticipating his experience on the cross. That was all there, and it was unmistakable. Indeed, in the New Testament, a lot of quotation of Psalm 69, because it was all fulfilled in the sufferings and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in this psalm, He's there again, but it's now his glory. It's his glory that we're seeing, his triumphs and his victory. And how that triumph and that victory then comes down to us and brings the blessings of salvation to us. That's him. That is what he came to accomplish. And he is the one, well, I'm looking a little bit beyond the verses we have this evening just to to draw our attention to how he can be properly thought of, but he, he's blessed. Men shall call him blessed. That's in verse 17. And we see that uh, that blessing then is actually spoken in verses 19 and 20 as this psalm, and indeed this second division, as it were, the book of Psalms ends with blessings being bestowed upon him, men giving him praise Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. Glorious name, name that draws our attention. And, and the name really means the person, what his character is. The name that is expressive of who he is, his identity. Well, may men and women Put their full attention upon him. Let them be amazed at him and honor him. And that's what is spoken of here. That, that is the blessing. That is the glory that we are to give to him and that we are to bestow upon him. Not just we've done that as we sung our hymns this evening. So, and we'll come to this in a little more detail in a moment. We find our Lord Jesus Christ then very clearly prefigured in this psalm and his glory, his victory, 
in particular. And that is that we might, the people then in anticipation might also be drawn in admiration, be filled with wonder, be given to submission to him and to echoing his praise. So often we are led to quote what our Lord taught the two disciples, Cleopas and the other disciple who are walking the road to Emmaus away from Jerusalem when that stranger encounters them and begins to wonder why they're looking so downcast, why their countenance is so sad. And uh, he draws from them their hopes, dashed hopes at that of what they thought that Jesus of Nazareth was going to bring. Then he instructs them, doesn't he? And in Luke 24, verses 25 to 26, before, before he'd actually revealed his identity, which didn't happen until they got to Emmaus and he broke bread and their eyes were open. But here he says to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all things that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then we read this, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And I wonder if somewhere in that Bible study, as they walked along together, he referred to this psalm, Psalm 72. Psalm 69, perhaps, for his sufferings. Psalm 72, for the entering into his glory. Of course, that had begun when he rose from the dead, and his exhortation began in earnest, and followed through with his ascension, his coronation, and the pouring out of the Spirit upon the church. Finally, when he comes again, his absolute authority over all, even those who hated him. So we have that. But we also have Solomon here in this psalm. As is so often with prophecy, basically this is so much of what this is, David himself was a prophet. In this prophecy, it's also speaking about Solomon. So you have, as so often in prophetic literature, an immediate or more immediate fulfillment, but a fulfillment that the immediate subject is never quite going to carry the full implications and the full weight of the prophecy. There's someone else or there's something else that lies beyond them or lies beyond that country or that that uh, particular set of circumstances. And the greater fulfillment is, as described, going to be our Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not to say that Solomon is not in view either. And we could just uh, turn there across uh, further on to Psalm 89 and uh, just a few Verses from there, verse 35 to 37, where we read, Once I've sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. God's word, this, of course. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Now, that's a bit like Psalm 72, the language of it, and how this kingdom is going to be like the sun before me, established forever like the moon. Well, you find that reference in Psalm 72 as well. But when it talks of his seed in verse 36, enduring forever, his house that God had promised he would build for him. Then Solomon, king, son that was to follow, succeed David as king, 
is also here in view. And so my first heading is actually this, Solomon, type of Christ. Okay, we're having both here, as it were, together. Both the immediate fulfillment and the one beyond Solomon, the greater than Solomon. So Solomon, a type of Christ. Now, when we use the word type and find it in scripture, it's actually there in the, in the Hebrews and elsewhere that uh, you find this, this word is expressing really something about what the Old Testament is, characters, people in the Old Testament. And we would say they're a type of Christ. And what the word type means there is that they're like an example. They're showing us something about the Lord Jesus Christ, who he'd be, what he'd do, where he'd come from, what uh, would happen to him, what things would be done to him. That different people, different aspects of their life, and sometimes even their name, makes them what we call types of Christ. They're examples. They're working out for us some aspect in anticipation of what the Lord Jesus himself would in greater measure fulfill. So we have Solomon. And what is his name? Or the other name that is given to him, what he means he's one of peace there. But actually, also we can read of him in Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 and 25. Then David, the death of the child that was born there, really Uriah's uh, the, the way that David cheated Uriah in that way, when he comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah, because of the Lord. Jedidiah, name means beloved of the Lord. Well, that was Solomon there, wasn't it? Beloved of the Lord. And yet, of course, in saying that, we're already thinking of somebody else beyond him who would also be loved of the Lord. And so as his name is to carry peace with it and is really bearing great hopes and expectations. So we find him appointed their king in First Kings chapter 1 and from verse 28 onwards. And King David answered and said, call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king took on oath and said, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every distress, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. So I certainly will do this day. So it happens. And uh, though Adonijah had plans, those plans were not to be. And it was to be Solomon. He was the appointed king. And he was the one to succeed David. The name, peace, and beloved of the Lord brings with it there great hopes and expectations. And as we read of prosperity in Psalm 72 and doing great things in that way, well, so did Solomon. He brought prosperity to the country. First Kings chapter 4. Verses 20 to 23, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. So Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. 
And it continues. Now Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, and 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. Well, that's impressive. And his rule, well, you notice there that it is from the river. It would be thought of there to be the river Euphrates to the land of the Philistines, in other words, to the sea. And that is the nature of his rule. That is where his, his kingdom will be and where it'll extend from. As in verse 8 of Psalm 72, he shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river, when it there says, to the ends of the earth. Well, Solomon managed from the river Euphrates to the Mediterranean Sea. As you can see beyond that, there is a prosperity coming that is going to exceed that. Well, Solomon was as good as his name, peace. In verse 24, again, reading from 1 Kings chapter 4, we read this of him. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, Tipshar, even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river. And he had peace on every side all around him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his own vine and his fig tree, from Dan, in the north, as far as Beersheba, and in the south, all the days of Solomon. So his peace. That's what Psalm 72 tells us in verse 7. There's going to be abundance of peace until the moon is no more. Well, Solomon certainly brought something of that to come to pass. And when we read again of the righteous flourishing in verse 7, and of the king giving judgments to, to him, and of righteousness, not uprightness, good judgment, sound wisdom, and that he and then in turn will bring righteousness to the people and judge them with, with justice. Well, I'm going to read it all, but you can turn to it in the first Kings and in chapter three, where he makes that amazing ruling, those two women disputing over who was the true mother of the baby and one of them was lying and the, the true mother was, was there as one of the two. And Solomon then asks for a sword to be brought. He's going to cut the baby in two so they can each have half. And the true mother, Solomon knew, said, no, let, let her have him. Do not do this thing. So Solomon then awards the child to that woman for wisdom. And everybody's amazed. And he prayed for wisdom and God gave him wisdom. There is the, the prayer, give the king your judgment, so God, and your righteousness to the king's son. And Solomon had that in abundance. Peace in the land, prosperity, enemies brought under subjection, kings falling down before him, the queen of Sheba, arriving with all manner of gifts there. And, well, we can see that the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Verse 15, I'm looking a little ahead there. But all of that. Yes, all of that. Solomon, at his best, accomplished. But the greater fulfillment lies beyond him. That as Solomon, in a smaller sense, achieves those things, but as a type of Christ, pointing us forward to a greater fulfillment, what he's doing in his life is anticipating what the Lord Jesus Christ, in a deeper, richer, and fuller way, would accomplish himself. Not so much now. Territory, an earthly kingdom with a, a kind of geography, 
and that that's his area and the rest of the world not. No, he knows it's, that his kingdom now is not from the river, the sea, but it's to the ends of the earth. Well, Solomon at his best never went that far, but the Lord Jesus Christ will. He has all the nations, all of them, and he will call a people out from each and every one of them. And it won't be that there's this one specific country or kind of bounded territory and he kind of works there, but nowhere else much. No, he works everywhere now. And in all those places, you'll find his people and his kingdom. Well, it's not so much with a king there and a throne there and a palace. And he's ruling in our hearts, in the hearts and minds of his people and through the church at her best and through Christians working in different places and operating in at times, higher echelons of society and government. He's working there. There his kingdom is being seen. Christ's kingdom within, within his people. So there is Solomon, bringing in a more material sense, in a more earthly sense, something of a reality of what the Lord Jesus, in a fuller sense, is going to bring. Therefore, we would say of him, he is a type, he is an example. He's like a forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. My second heading, God's judgments and rule. Well, that's we've anticipated what happens where the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is in evidence. Well, don't look for a territory. Don't sort of imagine that uh, you come into the Kreitch postcode, suddenly there it is. Uh, there's this sort of kingdom, this marked off territory and Things will happen there. I'm sorry if you're from somewhere else, they don't happen in those places. It doesn't work like that at all. So we gather here, but then we go to our homes and our various situations. And the kingdom of Christ, which is within the expression of his character, his lordship, the, the way in which we live those things out, and he, his will is done through his people. Well, that happens wherever we are. That happens in our places of work and in our homes. It happens in the streets, in the shops, wherever we as his people go, at least in theory and at our best, there the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is seen. There it is expressed. Our words and our actions will communicate those things. We saw in Psalm 72 that, that righteousness, uprightness, good moral standing, a sort of truthfulness, integrity, honesty, trustworthiness. That's to be there with the Lord's people. It's justice in verse 2, giving, in a, at least in sort of human courts, what people deserve. And that that righteousness is found in unlikely places. Verse 3, the mountains and the little hills. Well, there'll be righteousness found there. Wherever God's people go, wherever they tread, then they will take with them those lessons that they learnt, subduing of their sins, the correcting of their moral deformities, that now, instead of being shifty and deceitful, they'll be upright. They'll love to be upright and to be straight-talking and honest and reliable, trustworthy in what they say. That's what the Lord brings. He enables us to... Bring those good judgments in turn. He himself did, after all. That's why I read John chapter 8 and the woman caught in adultery. And well, we feel we're very much in the territory of Solomon here, aren't we? 
Uh, whoever is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Well, that sorted them out. And they all of them there were convicted, and from the oldest to the last, they all left. And so when the Lord raised himself and confronted the woman, where are those who accuse you? Is there no one here to condemn you? And of course, they've, they've gone. Those who were there looking to try to maneuver our Lord into a bit of difficulty. We completely saw through that and rendered a judgment that we still preach about to this very day. What wisdom. And uh, later on there, when they come to him trying to again catch him out, is it lawful to give taxes to Caesar or not? And so he calls, doesn't he, for a denarius and, uh, whose image and inscription is on this. And Caesar's, they say, and so they are told, render to God the things that are to God, and Caesar the things that are his. They're quite speechless. Wisdom. That uprightness and that good, clear, authoritative declaration, application of truth to the particular situation, to the people that were within his gaze. Something that he was able to say to them, and that was wonderful. Well, Isaiah 42 gives us a little uh, expectation of that, a prophecy here. Isaiah 42, verse 1, uh, God speaks, speaks of his son. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. Lord Jesus Christ, Jedediah, beloved of the Lord, I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice. There's that word again. Justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will bring, he will not fail nor be discouraged till he's established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. His law is wisdom. And he'll bring it to all the places there, the coastlands. Well, here it's up in the wilderness, the mountains and the little hills where righteousness is going to flourish. And all his commandments, well, they're given to us there. We thought about those, didn't we, a few months ago. And he gives us wisdom to know how to apply them, what they're saying to us. And where they, like the Sermon on the Mount, take us deeper and deeper into the people that we are and interrogate us more carefully and closely, and wake us up where we've just been idling along and coasting, fondly imagining that we're fulfilling them when we're not. And he brings us up short in that. Just as he does, he asks good questions. Well, he helps us ask good questions, ask ourselves some good questions. What are you doing? What are you up to there? Why did you say that? Why do you think that? Why did you react like that? Why are you feeling what you're feeling? And those are good questions. And we have to sit down sometimes before the Lord and try to answer them, to understand human character, our own human character, and understand the character of others. Well, we can often give ourselves away, can't we? Proverbs 18 verse 2, a fool has no delight in understanding, but in expressing his own heart. Well, we're sometimes guilty there, aren't we, of expressing our own hearts. It's a bit embarrassing. We realize, what was that? What came out then? And we know that we need a little application of justice, a little application of righteousness. Something needs to change here. This should not have come out like that. 
shouldn't have said that, shouldn't have felt that. That shouldn't be the response to that. What's gone wrong? And we interrogate ourselves and find out what the Lord would have us to change into. Well, we could say that God's rule, this is the kingdom of Christ. This is the the bread and butter of it. These are the kinds of issues that uh, our Lord is dealing with his people in. Well, the governments, in a sense, even though they're led by fallen people, may not be believers, but they do well when they do actually follow the precepts of the Bible, at least in measure, and some degree of, of outward conformity to it and uh, exhorting others to follow in them. That's where we grieve, don't we, that uh, governments often don't do that in the West or in any other country in the world that we can mention. Expenses, scandals and cronyism and lack of integrity and honesty and all the rest of it. Well, so much for secular government. Has to be better in the church or it should be. The church really should be training grounds for these things, for righteousness and justice, uprightness. And this should be something that is deeply, deeply characteristic of us. That here within the church, well, it should be true doctrine, biblical doctrine that is taught and lives that then are expressive of that doctrine. That's where the kingdom really is seen, isn't it? That we live it out. The kinds of people we are shows we're taking this seriously. We believe in the Ten Commandments. We believe in the authority of the Bible. We believe the Sermon on the Mount and all of the instruction, Matthew 5 to 7, a lifetime's work. But we take it seriously. And we want to be those kinds of people, wiser, more discerning, more aware of our own failings and dealing with those, more loving, more prepared to. To, to see others in a charitable way. And so it goes on there. We know there are spectacular failures. There have been throughout the history of the church, both within the pulpit and in the pew. And those things, well, brethren, they should not be, should they? We've heard of churches hiding abuse or keeping women in some terrible situation of abuse. Well, the church then has totally failed. Where the judgments and the righteousness uh, is to be given to the king's son and judgments given to the king, well, to the church, and she fails in it, then that is a disgrace because God's judgment, God's rule, who he is, what he's like, his uprightness, his moral upstanding, his honesty, truthfulness, reliability, integrity, that should be seen in Christ's people. So my final heading, peace and prosperity. And here we come, don't we, very much to the blessings of salvation, though that expression of Christ and his mind in us through our uprightness is, is part of this, that is a blessing of salvation. But here we have, don't we, this wonderful peace that he gives, a peace, something that the world knows nothing of, but that is his gift to us, my peace I leave with you. And he has, and he comes to us for the things that he's shown us in scripture and that the Holy Spirit deeply applies to our hearts. Peace from our enemies. We can see them suffering badly, can't we, in Psalm 72. Verse 9, those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him. These were wild, unruly people. These were heathen, heathen people. Well, they're going to be subdued. Enemies will lick the dust. 
great kings, Tarshish, we think that's probably modern day Spain, the Isles, distant places, they're going to bring presents and kings are going to bring offerings and fall down before him. That's his dominion. That's going to bring peace. And the Lord's people have peace from their enemies. First John chapter three, there in verse eight, it tells us he who sins is of the devil. The devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And he does emphatically at the cross and ongoingly in our own lives, in our sanctification, in the way in which sin is subdued, sin our worst enemy before. Well, it was, and it will be a defeated foe totally in heaven. But here on earth, we labor, wrestle against sin. And he gives us peace. There is victory in view, accessible and available. There upon the cross, it was the judgment of the devil, judgment and disarming of principalities and powers. And we access the fruits of his victory. We pray when we apply ourselves to the mortification of our sins. Hostiles bow down to him. We saw in our Lord's ministry that demons were cast out. And then in the history of the church, well, the, those who dwell in the wilderness bow before him. Well, whatever at the moment, with the decolonializing of syllabuses and curricula and efforts to make everything that was ever done by the United Kingdom and Empire and the rest of it seem horrible, horrible, horrible. Much of it was. But nevertheless, within that, the gospel also spread. And there were those, well, let's not mince words, were cannibals who ate other human beings and who heard the gospel and who changed and who then would say how glad they were for those people that came from far away and brought them this knowledge of the truth. Yes, those who dwelt in the wilderness bow before him now. And how wonderful and touching are those testimonies of that happening. People far away come. All of these from Sheba and Seba. We think Seba perhaps where modern day Ethiopia is and Sheba somewhere there in modern day Arabia, Arabian Peninsula, somewhere in that territory offering gifts. Ah, gladdens the heart, doesn't it? Hearing of people far off countries meeting together, loving the Lord, serving him, bringing their gifts and their talents to bear upon the work of Christian service. Well, even great people, kings who fall down before him, nations that serve him, people, all those nations who serve him. Well, Solomon had a goodly number of people come seek his audience but our Lord Jesus Christ commands attention. His authority is beyond that, reaches to the ends of the earth. And these people come, they're eager to make their peace with him. The wise men, when they came following the star that they'd seen in the east and had come to worship him, were like our first fruits of that. We see people bowing down to him. Well, every knee one day will bow. Philippians 2 verse 10 tells us that one day all the violence and enmity will cease in that eternal world of joy above. And as the blessings of salvation are peace, peace we have with God, peace we have with our fellow neighbor, then there is security as well. 
we are safe. That is the fruit, isn't it, of this glorious king and his kingdom and how he brings to us security and peace. Secure. That we need not fear any more death, judgment, devil, hell. We're past that and beyond that. And our security and our sense of reliance upon our Lord Jesus Christ, well, I trust increases as the years pass. And our hope in him just grows and grows. We see that this is absolutely watertight, what is done. And the person who has done this, this type of Solomon, but beyond Solomon, greater than him, the results of his ministry, of course, it all required of him such humiliation, such a death. But the results are wonderful. And we know that we are safe. And that God in all his holiness, uprightness and justice, though he looks upon us and for sure would see crookedness and perversity still. Yet he loves and continues to love. And the covenants he's made, the promises he has made and the arrangements he has made with us, Remain intact, remain enforced, that he will save you and me to the uttermost, that he will not weary in his work of bringing us to glory, that he will not fail in that work, and that we can rest secure in that work. Indeed, we will flourish, and there will be the abundance of peace until the moon is no more. It won't change. The season's coming, the season's going, the passage of time God's interest in us doesn't weaken for one moment. Look at the way in which this security, this relationship we have with him, the fruit that it brings, shall come down like rain, in verse 6, upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. Just walking over the wreck this morning to come to church and Walking over the grass, your autumnal feel, isn't there? And there's dew now, dew on the grass. Well, there it is, refreshing it and enlivening it. And well, this dry weather, it certainly needs a bit of refreshing and enlivening. And so do the Lord's people. That we too can be wearied and discouraged. And then suddenly something changes in us, something happens to us. And it is as though the, this gentle rain has come down upon the grass before it's mown and there are all the blades all glistening with those little droplets of dew rain drizzle whatever upon them and greening up beautifully and refreshed again and revived and putting forth new growth he is experts at coming to the dry and despairing coming to those who feel pretty washed out actually spiritually as though the work is too much for us but no he finds us there and brings a a gentle rain a blessing upon us that comes from the throne above friends that comes from the fruit of his death his blood that was shed it was to purchase that and more than that so we find those showers watering the earth, and we're enabled to flourish where we'd felt weary, discouraged. Suddenly, we're able to flourish. We're smiling again. We're enjoying the things of God again. We're back where we should be in the Bible. We're back praying again. 
We're having faith, believing the promises of God, laying hold of them, living out what it says. And that was him. That was a spiritual blessing that he brought. So then the blessings of salvation, well, that's just a few of them. They all come from this king of glory for all that suffering that he had to suffer, as he told those disciples on the road to Emmaus and then enter his glory. Psalm 72 tells us about that glory, tells us about him ruling and reigning, what it's going to look like, what it's going to do in us, what it's going to do through us, and the comforts and the peace and the joy that is his inheritance, his gift to you and to me. We'll enjoy that gift. Go on into the week. Serve the Lord. And God willing, come again next Lord's Day evening to look at the second half of this great psalm.